Now, our next guest coming up is James Corbett. And I've got to tell you, this man, a quarter of a million subscribers, I mean, on YouTube alone, millions upon millions of views with respect to his investigative work product. Everyone, I believe everyone, at least everyone I've spoken to knows exactly who this man is. He's got, he's a very articulate uh, gentleman. He's, he's, he's the creator of... Um, uh, a new documentary, Why Big Oil Conquered the World. I watched this today. I watched. Uh, I watched the uh, the um, how big oil conquered the world. And you know, Joe, so, something I wanted. I wanted to mention to you. In this, I saw a lot of familiar geography there because the one uh, video talks about. Titusville, Drake Well, the oil well at mm-hmm. Drake's Well. And I spent uh, I spent quite a bit of time. Actually, I lived in Titusville for a period of time in, uh, my goodness, a lifetime ago. And uh, very familiar with, with the, the Drake's Well, the oil down there. And uh, even at that time, it was in the 1970s for a period of time. Even then, um, it, it, was, it was just rich history. So, it, it, his James Corbett, the uh, why big oil conquered the world and how big oil conquered the world to me was absolutely a fascinating watch. And, and what, what you can deduce from it is incredible. And of course, his website is CorbettReport.com. That's CorbettReport.com. So we're really thankful. And I'll just have you bring him on. Yeah, James Corbett, welcome back to the Hagman Report. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Man, I'll tell you something. You're making waves all over the place. Your new, your new documentary. Um, it's, it's an amazingly comprehensive work. You, you must have put a lot, you must have put a lot of time into that. I'm not sure how you do what you do, but certainly it's well worth the, uh, well worth the watch. Uh, uh, I, I, my goodness, it answers a lot of questions. Let's start, let's start there. Let's talk about your documentary. Sure. Well, thank you for uh, pointing that out. It certainly was a lot of work. In fact, in some ways, I think this is the culmination of my 10 years of doing the Corbett Report <clears throat> is it really encapsulated in this information, which when you look at the whole how big oil conquered the world, which I released two years ago and why big oil conquered the world, which I released last month, it's uh, to combined. It's a three hour documentary, but it could have easily been a 30 hour documentary, given just how much material is condensed down into it. So it was quite an incredible, incredibly challenging feat to try to condense that amount of information down to just a few hours and to do it in a way that's presentable and understandable. And I hope I've done that. But it really does try to cover the past 150 years of history um, and the coming 50 years of history. So, you know, not not too big an ambitious project, right? Yeah, really. You, you know, as I watched this, um, you, you're right. You could have gone... 30 hours. And I can, I could tell you this, I would have watched all 30 hours. Um, but, but this is an important, really an important aspect of our, of our history. What's, what's the takeaway? Uh, if you were to kind of, uh, provide us with a summary or a takeaway for, for this project that, that you've done, what's the takeaway from this? Well, I think the uh, the one or two line elevator pitch would be that essentially the what I call the oligarchy, the uh, the oil barons of old were um, these families that created and consolidated the oil monopolies that monopolized the key energy resource of the 20th century. 
And that's the side of the story that most people would probably understand and relate to and have heard many times before. But this is not about that part of the story. This is about what they did with that money and power that uh, that monopolization of the key energy resource brought them. And I, I think it's surprising because ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, this isn't about oil per se. Oil was simply a tool to gain control over the population. It is what they are doing with that control that is really the key to the issue. Because if we concentrate only on oil and think only of big oil as the oil industry and they only care about petroleum, we miss that bigger picture and we miss the fact that we are now being transitioned into a post-carbon economy. What, what comes after oil? And people can be deluded into thinking that, well, the, you know, the big oil is being is being undermined and we're moving on to something else. And yay, I guess we're getting free of the grip of these oil barons. Well, no, not really. In fact, if you look at the people who have or who are founding and funding all of the institutions and various things that are coming into view in this post-carbon economy, it's all the same literal families that created and monopolized the oil industry in the late 19th century. So um, I, that's really the important part of this. And that's the, the part of history that gets excluded when when most people are looking at this, because I think when you look at the big oil, how big oil conquered the world, why big oil conquered the world, you're going to assume this comes from a traditional leftist kind of anti-corporate perspective. That's it's so much far, farther beyond that. And it's so much deeper and comprehensive than that, that I think it's going to be surprising for a lot of people. Well, well I, th I think you kind of blew the next question, my next question out of the water then, uh, which which is, but I'll still ask it, to what extent did... Barack Obama play in the role of uh, now these are my words um, destroying or man, not, maybe that's too too strong of a word adversely affecting the uh, the oil industry uh, and, and then that would include coal as well and, and to what extent did, did, uh, in the same lines did Donald Trump play what role has he played so far or to date with respect to um, undoing what Obama did or didn't do. Does that make sense to you? It does. I think perhaps the more interesting question is who is really behind that dismantling? Was it President Obama and, uh, or was there something else behind that? And I think we can look at kind of a deeper underlying issue here with regards to this dismantling of the oil monopolies and and all of that. In fact, if we go back to the dismantling of Standard Oil itself back in, I think it was 19, I want to say 1911-ish, when the original ruling came down from the Supreme Court that, that uh, disbanded Standard Oil and split it into what eventually became the Seven Sisters and ultimately made Rockefeller even richer as a result, um, which is strangely enough. Funny how that works. Uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Again, we can see that there's a there's a hand behind the dismantling of these things that uh, that guides it in a certain direction so that also when it comes to this green movement that is, of course, supported from the left side of the left right paradigm, you have the leftists who are the, the greenies and environmentalists. And so they're supporting all these things, but not really either not realizing or not scrutinizing too hard who is actually steering this, who is controlling and funding and creating the organizations that are steering this so that you can look at an Obama and the things that he did with regards to coal and, and things like that. But why don't we look a, a step deeper than that? Um, for example, in 2006, there was this United States Climate Action Partnership that formed to create a call for action 
which was used as a blueprint for legislative action that actually became the waxman marquee bill that was floating around during the Obama administration in the early uh, part of the first uh, term of Obama's uh, term in office. And that was this carbon tax uh, idea, the, the cap and trade idea that was floating around in Congress that ultimately got voted down. Um, but where did that come from? Well, the United States Climate Action Partnership sounds like some sort of, you know, leftist environmentalist group or something. Until you look at who it actually was founded by, it was uh, BP, ConocoPhillips, General Motors. All of these people were involved in this USCAP that was funding this. Why? Why on earth would the oil oil companies and and and, uh, and car car companies and others that rely on petroleum why would they be funding these things that create this cap and trade scheme that's that, uh, surely the no this is this doesn't make any sense because the left side of the paradigm is against these big corporate monopolies and they're trying to fight against it but they're being funded what my head's going to explode <laughs> it's until we realize that there's a deeper level of what's going on here that again it isn't fundamentally it isn't about oil it's about the control and one way to control any resource is to create scarcity, uh, it, artificial or otherwise, perceived or real, as long as the perception of scarcity is there. And one way to do that is to create caps and then trade and create these carbon markets. And lo and behold, who uh, several years ago in a uh, headline in The Telegraph was touted as being potentially the world's first carbon billionaire, carbon tra trading billionaire, Al Gore. Yes. You know, the crusading environmentalist who cares so much about the environment that he has a uh, property that you, it consumes, I think it was 40 times more energy than the average American household. Uh, a, a waterside property, by the way. So, of course, when climate change, you know, causes all this uh, this flooding, it's going to affect his property first. But he doesn't seem to care about that. And he's situated to be a carbon billionaire because of these carbon trading schemes that he's trying to bring into uh, play. Again, there's a deeper level behind all of this, and it's not about the political puppets that are paraded out, out in front of us. It's about the, the real string pullers and the machinations that they're doing to, to not only consolidate their control, but to actually make it complete, to have complete control over the economy and everything that happens within it. All right. And that, in my mind, that brings up the question of the petrodollar. Um, the or is that, and thank you for correcting me, you know, with respect to saying that that's not really the right question to ask. It would be, so my question, however, in this case is, what about the petrodollar in the in this case, given the fact that our U.S. dollar is, is essentially um, the only value it, it does hold is its ability to, to ensure the free access or the free flow of oil? Um, what's What's the... What's the ultimate objective or the end game with our with our petrodollar? So in the first part of this two part documentary, How Big Oil Conquered the World, I did talk about the rise of the, the petrodollar. And for people who don't know, in the 1970s, as a result of the, the oil crises and embargoes that were going on, there was some shuttle diplomacy that was uh, spearheaded by Henry Kissinger, of course, the acolyte of David Rockefeller, of course, of the Rockefeller family, of course, of Standard Oil. Um, who engineered a system, a deal with Saudi Arabia, whereby the Saudis would price their oil in U.S. dollars. They would sell oil for dollars specifically, and they would take those dollars that they were receiving for their oil, and they would uh, basically put them back into the U.S. Uh, banking system by buying treasuries and bonds um, through U.S. banks, including the Rockefeller's own Chase Bank. 
Um, win, win, win for the oligarchs who literally yeah. created a system in the post Bretton Woods universe uh, after Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard. What's going to peg the dollar? Why would people continue to want dollars? It's because they need it for oil. And that sets the baseline, which creates this need for reserves, which creates the need, the demand for dollars, which creates the ability for the United States to print as much of its debt as it wants, add as many zeros to that debt as they want. And people will continue to buy it because it is the backbone of the world economy. And the backbone of that system is oil. Um, it's an ingenious and diabolical system. And it's worked to a certain extent for the last 40 uh, plus years, but it is falling apart now. And we are seeing the end of the petrodollar system coming into view. And there's some very, very fascinating things happening with regards to Saudi Arabia and China and the petro yuan that may be coming along. But I think the end of the petrodollar system, uh, if not baked into the cake, at least is an eventual reality. And I find it difficult to believe that the same people who engineered that system wouldn't understand that and be prepared for the transition into something after that. And in fact, they were. Uh, as I talk about in the second part of this documentary, Why Big Oil Conquered the World, there it was a movement in the 1930s, well, 1920s, 30s, it was developing, called Technocracy. And uh, it became an organization called Technocracy, Inc., founded, co-founded by Howard Scott and uh, M. King Hubbard, who people might remember as the founder, the, the, the inventor, the discoverer of Hubbard's Peak, a.k.a. Peak Oil, which was in fraud in and of itself. But at any rate... Um, he was at the time in the 30s founding along with Howard Scott, who was this eccentric engineer who turned out to not have any qualifications whatsoever. He was a complete fraud. But they came up with this idea for technocracy, which is the system of complete technological engineering control over the economy and thus society and politics and everything, basically the world. And their idea is we now have the technological know-how and ability to perfectly dynamically balance production and consumption in the economy. Because, of course, the great problem of capitalism, which, of course, was staring people in the face in the 1930s, specifically during the, uh, the Depression, was we have these great booms and busts and we have these depressions and the economy is constantly trying to come to some sort of stasis. It's always blowing up or, or collapsing. Um, well, we can perfectly dynamically balance production and consumption by simply monitoring everything that's taking place in the economy. And instead of using dollars or pesos or yen or whatever to as, as a currency, why don't we use energy itself as the currency? Because everything we produce in the economy requires energy. So we'll have these technocrats, these engineers and these technologically minded people who will steward over the economy. They will decide a budget for the nation. Uh, or ultimately they wanted a continental um, technate, as they called it. But uh, they would decide on, we'll have so many, whatever, gigawatts, 1.21 gigawatts of energy uh, for, for the year. And every person will receive energy certificates. And here's your amount of energy that you're allowed to spend during this year. And you will purchase things using these certificates. And all of those purchases will be monitored in real time by the techni technocrats and they'll they'll figure out, oh, you know, we need to increase production here and decrease there and we'll have to adjust the budget here. And they'll perfectly balance it so everyone's employed and everyone's happy all the time. That was the idea of technocracy. And back in the 1930s, that was I mean, there were a lot of insane good ideas going around during the Depression because obviously it was a time of panic and 
and outrage and everything. So people were turning to crazy ideas. Technocracy was one of the crazy ideas they turned to. And a lot of people did. It was a quite a large movement. You probably haven't heard about it at all in the last half century plus because it kind of went away. But the idea was still there and it was carried on by other people under other names. And that survives, I think, today in this idea that we see being forwarded. Why don't we create a carbon budget and why don't we have carbon allowances? And if you, you know, if you spend your carbon allowance, then you can buy more carbon credits. Or if you're out of luck or if if you're out of money, then you're out of luck and you can't buy any more credits. It's that old technocratic idea that eventually we will replace this, these dollars, these petrodollars or whatever we're trading with, with energy. Energy will be the baseline for the economy and you will be rationed and allowed a certain amount of energy. And that is the way that the economy is going to be controlled. And again, that crazy idea that they're going to monitor every transaction in real time and and do all these calculations was crazy 100 years ago. It's feasible. It's not only feasible, it's already happening to a certain extent now. Everything you transact is being databased and logged and stored and analyzed and sold uh, as information to other people. Now it's just a question of consolidating that and putting it in the form of some sort of energy certificate or whatever that sounds or looks like in the 21st century. But it is we're on the cusp of that. And I think that's ultimately what this as the petrodollar wanes, I think the rise of this new form, this new idea of currency is going to rise. And that's fascinating, by the way. So it's going to be it would have to be by necessity electronically based. And of course, that's uh, as you had indicated, the, the technocracy kind of over overlapping or, or uh, assimilating into this technocracy. Am, am I right? I, I suppose. Yes, that, that's okay. exactly right. Uh, right. This will all be electronically monitored, surveilled, database logged and uh, ultimately scrutinized. And of course the technocrats and the people who forwarded this idea are the engineers and what have you that, that of course in their own mind, they really do believe that they can, properly do these these things and if they if they get the calculations right then they can balance the the economy perfectly and that will create social and political harmony and all of this i mean i think the people at that level really do believe in it but of course it's always a question yes okay you have these dreamers who have this crazy idea but who's funding and who's backing the people with these crazy ideas and and how is this being employed and i think that's when we start to see the bigger the bigger bigger picture emerging of people who the you know, billionaires, trillionaires, the whatever heirs, because they create the money. So who cares, you know, what money actually is. Those people who are backing the technocrats or would be technocrats are the ones that I think are really steering the ship and steering it for the reason that it completely consolidates control over every aspect of the economy. Everything you do, everywhere you go, everything you buy or sell, everyone you talk to is going to be tracked surveilled, database logged, it already is to a certain extent. And this would just consolidate that control. And then it's just a question of, well, isn't that isn't that the world government idea in a nutshell? Isn't that the ultimate dream of tyrants since the, the birth of civilization? Exactly. And, and we're there now, or at the, at the cusp of that, I suppose, which I, I just, I, I'm amazed at how quickly everything has really i mean just think back in 2005 is is when the nsa kind of was everyone kind of acknowledges that year the nsa was uh, actively involved in collecting the the surveillance the 
data maintenance and um and of course uh um so but look how quickly all of this has, has come about and you really have done a great job by the way uh on the documentaries going back to that well on on just if i can interject sure. on the note of how quickly this is all coming about just before we went on i was just reading a uh, an article about ray kurzweil giving a speech people who don't know he's this singularity proponent he's the guy who is saying we're going to be merging with machines by the year 2030 and you know uh, he thinks it's a good thing. But anyway, uh, of course, now he's a senior executive at Google. Surprise, surprise. But um, this article was talking about a speech he gave in which uh, he was saying he still thinks we're on track. Uh, he's said for a while that 2029 is the date of the singularity where whatever happens, happens. You know, computers start to become smarter than humans or we merge with machines or whatever he thinks is going to happen. He's, he thinks we're still on track with that. And he, he points out. Yep. Now that people are completely addicted to their smartphones, it's just a question of starting to wire that into your body. And by in 12 years from now, that's what people will be doing. And I don't think I, there's a point at which I would have thought that would that was crazy. That's ridiculous. But the way that things are progressing, can any of us really say? I mean, just think 12 years ago when a smartphone would have been it would have seemed like Star Trek or something. It seems like total sci-fi fantasy. Well, here we are. And now, yes, everyone is addicted to them and, and on them constantly. 12 years from now, where are we going to be? This is happening a lot faster than people realize. Yeah, it is. And it, you know, it lines up with, uh, some say, uh, and I agree with this with, with Bible prophecy, what the Bible talks about will happen in the end times about this beast system that encompasses all. And you take the mark. And if you don't take the mark, you're an outcast of society that will be hunted and killed for not doing so. And it, and it's really interesting that we're at a point now where we, for the first time ever in human history, have the technological capabilities to implement a system that would do just that. I want to ask you this, um, about the universal basic income. Now I know this is not really a, a major thing, especially when we're talking about the technocracy aspect, but do you think that they're going to implement some kind of universal basic income uh, on a national international level at some point? I think it's possible that we might move in that direction. But as always, I mean, the question is, who does this really benefit? And, uh, you know, accuse me of being cynical, but I don't think a move like that would ultimately be for the benefit of the human society in general, mm -hmm. because it would ultimately be about uh, in the same way that this the welfare state itself, the, the sort of New Deal idea that we now have, that the government is there to protect you from cradle to grave and to to provide you with all this manna from heaven, um, which, of course, is just either stolen from you in the form of taxation or is uh, is uh, created out of thin air in the form of debt that uh, becomes debt slavery at a certain point. Um, that that idea is so insidious because, of course, it sounds so wonderful. We're going to take care of you. And if you ever get sick, if you ever have problems, we'll be there. But what it does is it creates not not a net, not a safety net, but a cocoon. It's a it's a shell and people become dependent on these systems that are ultimately uh, their lifeline. It, they become dependent on on this uh, this 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 whatever this manna from heaven, as they say. And that creates a society of dependence. It creates a, an, an idea of dependence that we need the state in order to live, um, which is absolutely antithetical um, to what was common sense a century ago. Uh, people a century ago, when they started to bring in these sorts of ideas, social security number and all of this, people literally thought this is this is insane. This is nightmare. This is tyranny. Um, 
and why, you know, we we shouldn't be reduced to this. But now it's just so much a part of our everyday life that, yeah, OK, why not? And I think in the same way, universal basic income will be a way to make sure that people are completely controlled and completely dependent on the state, on the powers that shouldn't be, on the people who are puppeteering the system. So that ultimately, I mean, I think the ultimate goal is to round people up into small urban areas where they're all allotted, they have their carbon allowance or whatever. And the worst part about this is that there is other layers of control that's being slotted into this right now. For example, in China, they're now talking about this new social credit system that they're bringing in. Yeah, I that's that. They're going to start assigning points to people. You can get points if you do things that are good in the eyes of the government, like, I don't know, pose, retweeting or the Chinese equivalent of tweeting uh, something from, you know, the, the Ministry of whatever finance or whatever. If you if you promote that on social media, maybe you get some points or things like that. If you do good things for the government, you get points. And the idea is, well, if you don't have enough points, uh, you won't be able to do certain things. Maybe they won't give you a visa to travel to another country or whatever it is at, at a certain point. Is it difficult to imagine that if you don't have enough points, then whatever, they throw you to the wolves in metaphorically or literally, however that works. I mean, this is the way this goes. And if people are dependent on the government for their universal basic income, if they're literally dependent for their livelihood on that those systems of control, then you can make everything into a game where you have to jump through all the hoops. And if you're a good citizen, if you're a good cattle, if you're a good sheep, if you can be rounded up and jump through all the hoops, then we'll allow you to live. And that's essentially the the offer that's coming into view. And that's why these promises, these promises will take care of you from cradle to grave are so insidious. Absolutely. And um, f folks, you can see why the corporate reporter is so immensely popular. Uh, the uh, oh, just go to corporatereport.com. That's corporatereport.com. And by the way, Corporate Report is a listener supported commercial free alternative media site. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a Corporate Report member. And look, we get a lot of information from the Corporate Report. I cannot think of a better investment, uh, but definitely support. James Corbett, his work, just the documentaries alone, as we opened up talking about, my goodness, the amount of time and effort that went into that is just incredible. So uh, be generous with your support of James Corbett and uh, the Corbett Report, and also follow the Corbett Report on Twitter, Corbett Report, simple enough on Twitter. Um, if we can switch into a different topic right now, because I noticed your, your article from a couple of days ago now about the JFK files, there's a lot of to me, and I think you did a very outstanding job of really kind of getting into what's new and what's not. Can we talk about the JFK files for a little bit? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So, so, okay. So now we've got allegedly, uh, the, the, the most comprehensive release given the 25 year at the culmination of the 25 year uh, waiting period after the 92 decision of, of the JFK assassination files. What did we learn? So just to bring everyone up to speed, as you say, in 1992, the JFK Records Act was passed. And this was the result, really, of the 1991 Oliver Stone film JFK that caused the public outcry about why are these files being kept secret? We, we need them released. Um, Bush was president at the time, former chief of the CIA um, back in the 1970s, as you might recall, the director of the CIA, who had never been in the CIA before that point, pinky swear, honest. 
uh, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but uh, so it's it, a story. It seems unlikely it. that he would pass something like this, that he would sign something like this that would open some of these uh, vaults and archives. But he was hemmed in on the campaign trail. Clinton said, I'm, be- I'm behind this. So Bush said, OK, I'm behind this. And so it ultimately got signed. Um, and it created the Assassination Records Review Board, which throughout the 1990s was looking at all of these documents that were in the archives that were classified, that were that had been kept from the public and working to get them declassified and, and put out <clears throat> put out to the public. So throughout the 1990s, it was doing this. And I think 1998 or so it wound up its operations and some interesting documents did come out of that. In fact, people in your audience might have heard about Operation Northwoods which was this plan that was put on Kennedy's desk in 1962, um, signed off on by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, waiting on Kennedy's desk for his signature to go ahead. It was a plan to commit and stage fake terror attacks, even to the point of actually committing terror attacks, including bombings and shootings in in Washington and other places, uh, blowing up planes over uh, over the, the, the Atlantic, real or simulated. All of these crazy, crazy ideas um, that, again, was literally just waiting for Kennedy's signature. He did not sign off on it, thankfully. Um, But at any rate, Operation Northwoods, that whole plan, which people might have heard about, which is a key part of our understanding of false flag terrorism and and what this really is, came from that Assassination Records Review Board and these documents that the CIA had been sitting on at that point for over three decades. Um, So now, uh, but... At the end of the ARRB, they hadn't finished with all of the the records. Part of the JFK Records Act that was signed in 92 was this 25-year window. Uh, These records have to be released 25 years from now. Well, 25 years later, it's 2017. Here we are. So we get to the point where literally, if Trump had, I don't know, gone golfing, had some chocolate cake, whatever, done anything, uh, these records should have, by law, been released. But interestingly enough, he didn't do that. He signed this extension. He said, well, okay, you know, these guys can have another six months to redact what they need to redact and blah, blah, blah. So, in fact, we did not get the release of records that we were supposed to get uh, last month. We got a tiny fraction of it. And to put some numbers to that, of the 3,000 and some odd documents that were previously withheld in full that the public have not seen anything of, there, there was less than 2% of those records, I think 54 or so of those records were released. And of the 30,000 or so that had been previously released in redacted form that were supposed to be released in full, we got something like 2,800 or so, so uh, less than 10%. So we've seen just a fraction of what was supposed to be released released so far. And the idea is supposedly maybe the rest is coming before April of next year. And we've already seen a few hundred more records uh, given treacled out to the public. So we'll see how this plays out. But at any rate, these are records that have been kept secret for now over 50 years. Well, many of them over 50 years that relate in some way to the JFK assassination. So as you say, it's a question of finding out what's actually new here, what is new information, what is old information, what are false cookie crumbs that have been planted there to lead people off in crazy directions. And it's not so, it's not necessarily easy, even at the best of times, even for the most well-intentioned of people uh, to look at these documents, unless you have been studying this JFK assassination brouhaha for 50 years. I mean, there's 50 plus years of research now. It's very difficult to make heads or tails of a lot of these documents. So I'm in the process of interviewing some people, and I'll be posting that on my website later this week and next week, uh, talking about these files in greater depth. But so far, there's been 
some interesting nuggets. I don't know if surprising, but at any rate, some interesting nuggets, including one about Operation Mongoose, which was the uh, the CIA, uh, well, the, the intelligence uh, uh, broadly. It was led by uh, Edward Lansdale of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, it was a, a, a destabilization campaign against Cuba, overthrow the Castro government, all of that. That was talking about um, there was the meetings uh, minutes were released from a meeting that I believe took place in 1962, where they were talking about, well, we could introduce a biological agent to the uh, the crops in in Cuba that would destroy their crops, devastate their economy, presumably, you know, lead many people to starvation. The only qualm that was raised at the meeting about doing this was, well, you know, if we do it wrong, if we botch it, it might be tied back to the U.S. And, you know, that wouldn't look so good. So as long as we can do it in a way that that is undetectable or they can't trace it back to us, then as long as it looks natural, then we'll, you know, we should go ahead with that. Again, luckily, I, I presume that did not go ahead. But at any rate, these are the types of things they talk about behind closed doors. And these are the types of things that are buried in these JFK files. For anyone who's looking for the signed, sealed, delivered death warrant, yeah. you know, Alan Dulles, please kill J JFK. Of course, there is not going to be a document like that. But there are interesting things that we can learn at least tangentially about what was going on in that era from these files. James, real quick, I got to ask you about Martin Luther King. Um, was that part of the JFK file release? What we saw about information coming out saying Martin Luther King uh, was bisexual and was a communist or had communist friends. Was that part the of the release? child orgies? Right. Yes. Yeah. It, these files. Yeah. Some of these files pertain to that. Some of it is because the House Select Committee on Assassinations back in the 1970s, which was looking at JFK, was also looking at the MLK assassination. So there, the, some of these files relate to a bunch of things that were going on at that time. They're not all directly related to JFK per se. So some of them do relate to Martin Luther King, including the fact that, again, this isn't new information. We've known for quite a long time that the FBI was in a committed campaign to ultimately try to get MLK to kill himself. They they were trying to get him to commit suicide um, by, th th you know, saying, you know, we'll expose this information about you and all of that. For people who are interested in the MLK assassination and the truth about it, there's an excellent book by Dr. William Pepper, The Plot to Kill King. It's the result of his 30 plus year investigation into the case. He actually represented the King family in the trial that took place a couple of decades ago um, that most people don't know about that exonerated James Earl Ray as the supposed assassin. And he actually identifies the actual person who pulled the trigger in this book. It's an incredible book. And I have an interview up on my page that people can watch uh, with Dr. Pepper about that. Cool. And what was I'm the title the, of that? The Plot to Kill King, right? Plot to Kill King. Yes. Okay. I, I am going to order that book because on your recommendation, I've not read that book. Uh, it sounds like a, fa a fascinating read. Um, and, and you said you interviewed the author? That's, that is correct. William Pepper. Look it up on my page. And, okay. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to do that. That's, that's okay. That's uh, as good as done. So, uh, Jackie, if you're listening to this, go ahead and push the button on that. All right. Wow. All right. Uh, incredible fast paced interview, a lot of information. Uh, James Corbett, of course, is our guest, the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com is his website. Follow him on Twitter as well. Uh, YouTube, subscribe to YouTube. My goodness, what do you, what do you got? Like a quarter million people uh, subscribed and, and growing every day. Um, it, where else? I mean, there's a lot of things happening globally. We can go anywhere with respect to uh, the news. Um, I, I know that uh, you had made mention of the in the Asia Pacific with respect to the recent uh, 
the, the, the China situation, Japan, North Korea, all of this. Um, what's going, what's going on here? Uh, we've got Donald Trump in Japan and well, yes. Um, dumping his uh, fish food out all at once in the <laughs> yeah. famous now infamous picture. Ko- yes. Koi gate. Um, Yes, uh, yeah. there's some really interesting things going on oh over here, and maybe I'm a bit biased because I am here, so um, I'm obviously watching this closely, but there's been some interesting things happening recently, including last month there was the Chinese National Congress, the, specifically the Chinese Communist Party National Congress, which is this once every five years meeting uh, that the Chinese Communist Party puts together. Technically speaking, the Chinese Communist Party is separate from the Chinese government. So it's not an official government thing. It's a Chinese Communist Party thing. But of course, as we all know, it I mean, it's essentially the same thing. And at this once every five years meeting, they do things like deciding on any amendments to the Chinese Communist Party's constitution or or um, selecting the Politburo, which is a 25 member committee that itself uh, selects the seven member standing uh, uh, committee within the Politburo, which are essentially the leaders of the country. And of course, President Xi Jinping is part of that um, seven member committee, as is Premier Li Qicheng, um, his second in command. But the interesting part was the other five members of that seven member committee were all retired during this uh, previous National Congress and replaced with people who are seen as being close to President Xi Jinping. Beyond that, Xi Jinping also has this new thing called Xi Thought, and I can't remember the full title, something about Xi, the, the Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, something like that. That's the official title. It's just basically these 14 principles that he elaborated on that have been embedded in the Chinese constitution um, as part of this Congress which makes him basically puts him on par with Mao as this revered thinker um, in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. And to top it all off, although usually there would be a successor for Xi Jinping appointed during this uh, National Congress, looking out five years from now, after Xi Jinping's 10-year term as president is over, technically, theoretically, he's supposed to hand power over to another president. Um, But that did not happen. So there is speculation happening now that she might actually stay, stay on as president beyond his uh, ten years uh, ten year term. So uh, some interesting things happening with regard to that that could play into the general security situation here in uh, the Asia Pacific, which people know is getting crazier and crazier with the North Korea situation, for example, still being this giant question mark hanging over the entire uh, area. And then, of course, the Japan situation with the Japanese-U.S. relationship and how will Trump and Abe get along or not get along and how will they coordinate? Will they come to some sort of bilateral deal to replace the Trans-Pacific partnership that Trump scuttled or will something else happen? There's a lot of interesting things at play that could really profoundly affect the way this region and I think uh, ultimately the security of the globe goes in the future. Yeah, and and I kind of think that, in my view anyway, I I don't think that enough emphasis or enough... um, well, enough emphasis, I suppose, would be the way to say it is is being placed on the importance of the, of of the visit there. And, and I and I know that you're from Japan, or you're in Japan, living in Japan. Uh, so you've, but but I but I think that uh, what's taking place right now could set the economic stage, I guess, right for the near term and and in the long term, I suppose. Yes, we're certainly going to see what direction the uh, Trump administration is heading in, or at least with a little bit more clarity, because for the last several months, I think people have just been trying to sort out what is happening, because 
it seems clear that uh, that uh, Tillerson is not really speaking for the or he may be speaking for the State Department, but maybe the State Department isn't speaking for the U.S. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what's really going on. So some Trump Abe meetings and then Trump will be meeting with uh, the South Korean president. He'll be going to, uh, I, I believe, the Philippines, some other places in the Asia Pacific region. So there will be a lot of uh, things happening in the next couple of weeks, certainly for this region. And as I say, I think this does have some broader global implications because, of course, the Chinese-U.S. relationship has been the cornerstone of the economic engine of of uh, the New World Order, essentially, for the last couple of decades. And uh, it's very interesting to see what direction they're going to take that. Yeah, and uh, Trump's agenda or, or schedule here, he's getting ready to make a speech at the National Assembly in South Korea. He's going to be heading to China tomorrow, meeting with the uh, president and he was supposed to go apparently to a trip today up to the demilitarized zone right on the North South Korea border. But from what I can tell, there was some bad weather and the Marine one had to turn around. Um, and he also gave a, a tweet saying, expect a major announcement or speech uh, by him today and tomorrow, tomorrow a major announcement. But I want to ask you this, James, um, with the relations between China, the U S that you mentioned, Steve Bannon today came out and said that China is, quickly moving to take over the world and collapse the USA through the economy. Do you believe that there is this um, uh, position by China that they want to be the sole world dominant power and that they are willing to, to uh, do everything they can to undermine the United States to do so? At whatever cost. I think there are people within the Chinese leadership structure that probably do believe that. But as always, the question is, who is really calling the shots? Who is really directing what's going on? And there's a much, much deeper story to this. China did not just rise up overnight spontaneously as this mm -hmm. big economic powerhouse that suddenly has this military. This was a, a concerted effort that's taken place since normalization of U.S.-Chinese relations in the 1970s at the hands of Nixon, who was preceded, of course, by Kissinger, who, of course, is the protege of Rockefeller. So, again, it goes back to the same people. And uh, Brzezinski helped follow that up uh, during the Carter administration. And Brzezinski also being a close associate with Rockefeller and co-founder yeah. of the Trilateral Commission. Again, it all swirls around the same people. But there has been since that point a very concerted effort to create China as this economic uh, juggernaut. And that that that's such an important story to understanding what's really going on here, because ultimately, again, just like with oil, people think it's about oil when it's really about power and control. Also, when people look at the politics of the, say, post-World War II era, they see the United States and, you know, the U.S. is the superpower and all of this. And they start to think that these Kissingers and Brzezinski's and Rockefellers care about the United States, per se, and its relative standing against other countries. These people don't think in nation states. These people think only in terms of consolidating power and control. So I think ultimately the plan will be to transition at the very least to take the United States down a peg from world unitary superpower into some sort of multipolar world, or perhaps to see the rise of something like China or Russia or some other power as a as as a power above the United States. At any rate, I think the the taking down of the United States is part of this plan and is being conducted and coordinated between people like that. And it's interesting to see Bannon, who, of course, is now leading the the kind of uh, outside the administration lobbying for the nationalist kind of idea um, against the Chinese. 
with the specific and explicit help of Kissinger. Look up Bannon and Kissinger's recent uh, meetings and the fact that they're now coordinating strategies. But Kissinger's the guy who wrote, you know, on China mm-hmm. and is the seen as the Chinese expert. And he wants to co- he's always talking about, oh, we need to cooperate more with China and all of this. So why is he on board with Bannon? What's going on here? Again, there's a much deeper story to this. So I would suggest people take a look at a podcast episode I did called China and the New World Order, talking about who's really pulling the strings here and what the the, the relationship between China and the U.S. is. And recently I was in Denmark giving a speech at the Open Mind Conference on echoes of World War I, China, the U.S., and the coming Great War, where I talk about the setup that is being prepared now for some sort of confrontation between China and the U.S., whether Cold War or hot war or some other form of war that we can barely even conceptualize cyber war or whatever it is, is being set up right now. And I think it's a phony and staged and manipulated conflict. But even those phony and staged manipulated conflict can have some very real world results. So I think it's important to really be watching this. No, you're absolutely right. And I've read Brzezinski's books where he talks about uh, the rise of China from the 60s and 70s. And I've read Kissinger's and some of Rockefeller's books where they have talked about this. Uh, before they made it come to fruition and how they were going to move uh, money and, and, you know, prop up the the um, Chinese currency and, and make tons of money off them, but also make them a world superpower for the shift um, from America to the Asian Pacific, which is what we see today. James, we only got about five minutes left. I want to make sure we, we cover this again. You have your documentary from 2015 how Big Oil Conquered the World. You have a new documentary out, Why Big Oil Conquered the World. Where can people find that? They should go to CorbettReport.com slash Big Oil. And there you'll find both of those documentaries. They're available on YouTube and on BitChute.com, which is a video sharing platform people should know about as an alternative to YouTube, because as people might know, YouTube is starting to crack down on anything that sniffs of alternative media. Um, I've also got my own versions of the MP4 video file and the MP3 audio file of those documentaries that you can download and a complete hyperlinked transcript of both documentaries. So all three hours, if there's anything you hear that's interesting in that documentary, you can go search the transcript, look up who's saying that and where did it come from and go follow the hyperlinks and start doing that kind of research. Because as I say, this is a condensation of 10 years of research down into these three hours. So there's a ton of information and I wouldn't expect people would get every everything that's being said or talked about in the first go around. It's the kind of thing that I think you you have to study and get, really get at. So the, I've made it as easy and simple as possible and it's all 100% free, really available like all my work. Please do use it as a resource. If you like the work, you can support it. You can also buy physical DVD copies. I, I would urge everyone to support uh, the work of James Corbett. I really think th- there's no better investment. The investigative work product, the, what you cover, how you explain things, uh, certainly much better than I could ever do, and, and we collectively, uh, Joe and I, could ever do. And, and the guests that you have, the interviews that, that, that you do, just phenomenal work. So we really appreciate that. So we would urge everyone to support your research. we got to keep you around and keep you viable so you can continue um, providing us the information. In, any closing thoughts in the, in the what well, we got about uh, about two or three minutes left. Any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with our audience with? Well, I know conversations like this can be quite overwhelming and quite bleak in a lot of ways because there's a lot of very bleak information coming into view. But I always like to stress the things that we can proactively actually do to, if not, 
I don't think even counteract these agendas is quite the right way of saying it, because, again, that's that's an oppositional relationship where you're just reacting to what's being done to you. I think the real point is creating the alternative structures and systems that we can actually create and participate in ourselves that will be the alternatives that people can move to rather than being under these systems of control. And that's the important part to stress. So people who are interested in those types of ideas can always go to CorporateReport.com and just type the word solutions into the search bar of CorporateReport.com and you'll find dozens and dozens and dozens of articles and videos and uh, interviews and podcasts that I've done on the concept of solutions. What are things that people can actually do to to get away from these systems of control that are coming into view? Because the same technology that creates this constant global surveillance grid is the technology that could be the decentralization that creates this flowering of humanity. Hey, this conversation we're having right now is enabled because we have this remarkable technology. So we should be looking into this and how we can use it and, uh, you know, things that we can do that will ultimately be the things that either we as a human, the human species will decide to go on to this, this version of the future or that version of the future. And I know which way I'm going to steer my ship. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, the, sol- the solutions and that's what it's about. I, th- I think you've done a just a phenomenal job, as usual. And I thank you. We thank you for your gracious gift of time. I know you're a very busy man, and uh, the, the projects you've done are just uh, tremendous. Uh, I thank you. We thank you for your gift of time. And I'm going to be ordering the book, The Plot to, to Kill King, um, uh, on your recommendation. You won't regret it. Okay. Um, and, and thanks for... Uh, Thanks for everything that you do. And of course, we, we're going to be putting up links to your documentary, two documentaries, and urge people to to really get into that. And what, what a great service you've done. So again, we appreciate it. We hope you will come back. We're at the end of our segment. And uh, we just, uh, we, we again, are, you've got our admiration and appreciation for everything you've done. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, sir. Thanks, right. James. James Corbett, uh, CorbettReport.com. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, That was an amazing interview. You know, lots of awesome info. There are um, just a few people that, I mean, our time's limited, Joe's time, Mm -hmm. my time. And and he is one person that you can listen to the audio, the video, and boy, he gets right into it. And the information, the stuff that we learn is just um, absolutely essential to to what we do and the the two documentaries that that were the uh why and how big oil conquered the world are, are just phenomenal works uh very well done and free it's amazing so I urge everyone to go there joe you've got something from green innovative i just 